You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks and conversations from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. On this episode, we hear from New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu, whose speech, Will Violence Be Our Legacy?, was delivered at the 2014 Aspen Ideas Festival. Landrieu says that nowhere is America's crisis of violence more evident than in the African-American community. In this talk, he asks, what's the real cost of violence, and how do we change it? Since taking office in 2010, Landrieu has reformed the city's police department and launched NOLA for Life, an initiative to reduce murders. And it seems to be working, at least incrementally. The murder rate in New Orleans has dropped for the third straight year. So what can the rest of the country learn from New Orleans? The Aspen Institute found this talk to be so compelling that we'll be taking a deeper look at violence in America at the Aspen Ideas Festival this summer. Here's Mayor Mitch Landrieu. One of the things that happens um, when you're a mayor is you are given the opportunity, uh, you're compelled because you are responsible uh, to see things that maybe other people don't see. Uh, And I believe this nation is one nation and what's happening in one part uh, is not really that isolated from another. And so... Uh, I bring this talk to you today uh, to discuss uh, what I consider to be a very complicated, a very tough issue, and I'd like to speak for a while uh, and then, of course, open it up to questions because the big idea uh, is to stop murder, uh, uh, particularly amongst young African-American men who are killing and being killed uh, at catastrophic levels. My daughter said, well, that sounds like a great idea, but what's the answer? Uh, And I said, well, that's what we're going to start talking about. But what's happening in this country is we don't know what's happening. um, Or we're not thinking about what the answer is. So the big idea is for us to stop for a minute and just to think about what might be happening uh, that you may notice a bit uh, but don't really see. And so uh, I want to talk to you about this issue because as I have come to learn, hard truths fall uh, painfully, really, on ears that don't want to hear and eyes that don't want to see. I can tell you that there's something that's not right uh, in our country because every day some young African-American men are being killed at what I know you will come to learn are catastrophic uh, and alarming numbers. As I've said, we're supposed to be one nation. We're supposed to be indivisible. Uh, We're supposed to have one shared destiny. Uh, But the truth is uh, that African-American boys feel like uh, we have forsaken them. Uh, It's like a vine choking the life from a proud oak. Uh, I think this creeping menace of violence tightens its grip on our nation. I think that we are caught in a cycle of violence, and uh, if you pay attention, you will see that uh, many of us are drowning uh, in sorrow as we come to mourn uh, these deaths. In fact, it's a constant drumbeat of death, a constant drumbeat of shootings, a constant drumbeat of murder, day after day after day after day. Every year, 15,000 American citizens are killed on the streets of America. Uh, About 40 people lost every 24 hours. One person is killed every 35 minutes. A Newtown slaughter, 28 dead plus 12 every day. A Virginia Tech massacre every 20 hours. A Washington Navy Yard mass shooting every eight hours. And by the time this forum is over, more lives will be taken than the Sarnoff brothers took uh, on that fateful day in Boston not long ago. Indeed, last month, Every news outlet in America covered Elliot Rogers' murderous rampage at Isla Vista, 
uh, near the UC Santa Barbara campus. Six people were killed. But not much was said about the 80 individuals who were killed uh, in the three days prior to that. This humanitarian crisis is not in some faraway nation. It's here on our streets in America, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. We cannot be strong abroad if we're not strong at home. Morally, economically, spiritually, for the good of the nation, strength and security, we have to confront this and we have to do more. It's almost like this, this, this snowflakes of death that are falling across the nation and they dissipate when they hit the ground before anybody even notices that they were there. We rarely take note, and on the rare occasions that we do, we either forget immediately, we stay in denial, or we just walk by. So let's stop for a minute, and let's remember them uh, by person. This morning in Newport, Virginia, 19-year-old Richard Lewis was gunned down. While we were asleep last night in North Philadelphia, a 32-year-old man was gunned down for blocking traffic on his street. Early Thursday morning, Brendan Tevlin shot dead in his Jeep outside an apartment complex in West Orange, New Jersey. He had just texted his mom saying, I'm on his way home. He was a college freshman. He was 19. He didn't make it. 800 miles away, almost at the same exact moment, 21-year-old John Huddleston and 18-year-old Sidney Smith were shot in North Knoxville, Tennessee. John's dead. Sydney's likely to survive. The day before that, Del Monte Young was shot and killed in Baltimore. He was 19. Just a few hours earlier, 29-year-old Kevin Richardson and 26-year-old Nakira Jackson were shot and killed in Miami. That same day in rural Indiana of Louisville, Nikki Fields was murdered. On Monday night, Andre Roberts, age 23, was shot dead in Pittsburgh, and 15-year-old Nathaniel Torres was murdered in Windsor, California. Then there was India Martin, killed after what started with just crosswords on Facebook, spilled out into the streets. She was shot, she was killed in Chicago's back of the yards neighborhood. She was 14 years old. And just a few weeks ago in New Orleans, Johan Kenner was at a neighborhood park in Treme. Uh, when two shooters came by, they opened fire. It was a mistaken identity. He had just graduated, he was a football player. He tried to run away, he didn't make it, he was 17. We're losing a whole generation of promise, and these fresh victims lay cold in a mass grave shared by hundreds of thousands of American citizens. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Since 1980, Ronald Reagan was about to assume the presidency. 626,000 people were killed on the streets of America, a disproportionate number African-American men murdered in our nation. That's more Americans lost to murder in the last few decades than were lost in all of the wars of the 20th century. So it's been decades of mass murder in slow motion on the streets of America. This is not who we are as a nation, and it has to stop. We have to acknowledge it, and we have to say so. There are solutions, but at this point, instead of strong, decisive action, the overall national response to this daily carnage has been tepid and eerily quiet. It's as though we've become numb to the constant violence, and only the most horrific mass shootings slap us awake from this daze, which only keeps us awake for a while, and then we do nothing. The problem is so complex, it's so 
painful, we get overwhelmed, we look away, uh, we take the weak way out. Uh, maybe we're scared that if we speak up, we'll end up in the crosshairs. Or perhaps we as a nation have bought into the evil notion that the lives of these mostly young African-American men killed across our nation do not have value and do not deserve attention. We've heard it all before. It's just thugs killing thugs. There's nothing that you can do about it. But you know and I know that that's a lie. Every life is precious, and these young men were not predestined to this fate. We will never know what might have been. Instead of grappling with this problem, we desperately look around for quick and easy short-term fixes and want to get tough. More prisons, more guards, more guns. But in some instances, we just make things work. We just cannot arrest our way and imprison our way out of this problem. We have actually tried that, and it's not working that well. Consider this. America has more people incarcerated than Russia, Mexico, Iran, South Africa, Turkey, Canada, Vietnam, Colombia, England, Pakistan, Spain, Germany, Burma, Cuba, Venezuela, and Saudi Arabia combined. And many nations with fewer people in prison have less crime and they have less murder. Since the early 1980s, the number of incarcerated people in the United States has increased over fourfold, gone from less than 500,000 to about 2.2 million today. That increases over double the rate of inflation, by the way, for the same period of time. In Louisiana alone, since 1990, the population in prison has gone from about 19,000 to about 40,000 today, an increase of over 100%. That leaves about one in 86 adults in our state incarcerated, and nearly half are serving sentences for nonviolent, mostly drug-related offenses. Nationally, we spend around $70 billion every year on corrections. That's about the same amount as we spend on the Department of Education. Indeed, in average, public schools spend about twelve dollars to $13,000 per pupil per year to educate them. To incarcerate one person for one year costs about $30,000. Now, in Louisiana alone, in two decades, the, st the state went from spending about $275 million on incarceration to $750 million today. And after that, Louisiana's violent crime rate is higher than it was in 1997, 1977. In our city, we spend over $31 million per capita on jail per year, about the same as a city spends out of its general fund on the Department of Public Works, the Criminal District Court, the District Attorney's Office, and the Recreation Department combined. Now there's a bipartisan coalition talking about this, and it's important that we get that piece right. But here's the truth. We have a long way to go. America seems to be drunk on violence, and although today it may be another family in mourning, like a virus, it spreads, which is why it is very much not just a criminal justice issue, but a public health issue as well. So not all of us here may be at fault, but I can tell you this, we're all responsible for trying to find a way. Local, state, and federal government each need to do their part. Churches, schools, friends, neighbors, mothers, and fathers each need to do their part. And of course, these young men need to do their part as well. Learn and take personal responsibility. And first, they have to stop the shooting. For our part in New Orleans, we have had enough of the shooting. We've had enough of the death and the destruction in our city streets. So since taking office four years ago, besides working with the entire community to rebuild the city, our education system, our health system, all of the things that we're doing, we have made it a priority to reduce murder on the streets of New Orleans. So we went to police officers on the beat 
We went and talked to the mothers of murder victims. We went to expert criminologists uh, and held focus groups with these young men in the game, so to speak, all to ask, how, what is this? What is it about? How can we solve this problem? And you know something? From the hardened detective to the 17-year-old kid from the neighborhood, they all told us essentially the same thing. Solutions have to hit the streets with a special focus on prevention. From this wisdom, we designed a comprehensive solution that we call NOLA for life. It is tough. It tries to be smart. And of course, it aspires to be holistic. After all, a lot must change to prevent murder and to change what I call a culture of violence, learned behavior over time that keeps repeating itself that is producing bad results. We need more jobs. We need more schools. We need healthy neighborhoods. We need stronger families. We need a better police department. That's true. But we learn what matters most when it comes to preventing murder is that there are a small group of young African-American men who hang out together, who are the ones who are shooting and the ones who are being shot. Indeed, when it comes to murder in New Orleans, and I believe that this is true across America, the same exact profile begins to emerge time and time again. About one of every three murders occurs in the same four neighborhoods in the city. About 80% of the victims are young African-American and men between 16 and 25 years old. Many are high school dropouts. They're unemployed. 80% had an arrest record. Over half of them are under uh, a certain age. And here's the thing. Over 80% of them know each other. After talking to these young men who fit the profile, we learned something else. They want to get out of the game. Theirs is often a life of poverty, a life of fear, a life of desperation. But to hear it from them, and I know this will not resonate with you, it is, hey, man, it's either kill or be killed. We need to be tough, but we need to be smart. To prevent murder, we have to find a way to help these young men see a pathway to the future because they do not see that right now. To achieve that end, we go to these young men who are doing the violence. We literally bring them in. We sit them down. We tell them, we value you. You will not believe this, but we love you. We want to help you, but you have to put the gun down. You have to stop shooting because bad consequences from this day forward, I mean, bad decisions from this day forward are going to equal bad consequences. Sometimes the opportunity to make a change a glimmer of hope is all that is needed to get some of these guys back on track. I want to think about a young man who was on the wrong path. He was dealing drugs. He carried a gun. He ran with a crew. In fact, when he first got involved with NOLA for Life, he came with two of his friends. At the end of the year, though, one of his friends would be arrested for murder. The other was shot dead. But on that day, this young man chose the new way. With our help, he got a job. He worked hard. He's been promoted. He got off the streets and into a local community college. He's now building a life for himself and for his children. However, some don't heed the warning. Some go right back out and do the same thing they were doing. So we have a new local, state, and federal multi-agency gang unit that has in it FBI, ATF, DEA, the U.S. Marshal's Office, and the New Orleans Police Department, all headquartered in one spot. Thus far, their approach to basically going out and telling these kids bad decisions equal bad consequences has resulted in eight violent groups targeted, 84 individuals have been indicted, and with the help of our U.S. attorney in partnership with our district attorney, 
Many of these cases are being tried pursuant to something akin to the RICO statute, and they're being tried not as a one-off, but as gangs. This is producing definitive consequences for action, and it actually is having an impact. So we're sending a message through word and deed on the get tough side now. To those terrorizing our neighborhood, you have a choice. Stop the shooting, put your gun down. We're going to help you get on the right path, but if you don't, we're going to come after you, and we're going to protect you, and we're going to protect the community. We don't have all the answers, but we're trying anything that we can do to support our young men as they turn away from violence. With Mike Nutter from Philadelphia, who's the mayor there, we have established a partnership called Cities United, which brings mayors from across the country together who are drilling down on this issue. Our ceasefire program in New Orleans that we borrowed from Boston, from New York, and Chicago seeks to stop the cycle of violence by mediating conflicts. And hundreds from New Orleans' toughest neighborhoods have come out from midnight basketball to play, hear from role models, get connected to jobs, training, or whatever else is needed. Plus, we're working hard to get ex-offenders back on track. Now, this is really important because even though there are 2.2 million people in jail today, most of them are not going to be there forever. Currently, about one-third of the people being released from prison today go back to jail within three years. So we have a choice. We can either wait for them to commit another crime or we can get ahead of the problem and we can try to help them. We've got to shut down this revolving door. It's outrageous. One in 14 black men is behind bars, and one in seven is either in prison, on parole, or on probation. To fight violent crime and murder, we can't just keep ignoring this problem. So in New Orleans, as part of the NOLA for Life program, we have recently announced this new reentry strategy. We want to reach out within 72 hours of release from prison. We have a workforce reentry program, and we connect these, work, these offenders to jobs, and the business community has been a willing partner. Plus, at the city level, we have done what is called ban the box, where job applicants have to list their criminal record before they, before they even get an interview. The goal is to help the formerly incarcerated at least get a foot in the door so that they can actually talk and make a presentation. And if and when the employer wants to hire them, of course, then they have to reveal that. And that has, in many places uh, in the country, really assisted with bringing these individuals back into the workforce and helps them come back. After all, the city of New Orleans knows a couple of things about coming back. Nine years ago, when Hurricane Katrina crashed ashore and flooded 80% of our homes, caused billions of dollars of damages, killed 1,800 people. Since then, we're holding true to our unique culture. We sought to change our city and become a better version of ourselves and not build back the way that we were, but build back the way that we always should have been. Necessity is the mother of invention, and we're not building back in the ways that put us in harm's way. We're tackling tough problems like murder, but at the same time, we're, we're making every part of our city, from our schools to health care to our police department and city hall, and in fact, we are becoming, as we said at the last part, a very immediate laboratory for innovation and change. We're beginning to see really wonderful results. We're now one of the fastest growing cities in America, thousands of new jobs, our schools are getting improving rapidly. Our graduation rates are up, our dropout rates are down, and the achievement rate is closing dramatically between the kids in the inner city and the kids that do not live in the city. And murder, after all of our work, is now at a historic 30-year low. That's good. Lives have been saved. But on our best day, which we're having right now, our murder rate is still seven times the national average. 
In New Orleans, we still have more murder than nearly anywhere else. 156 people, our fellow citizens who were killed, were killed in New Orleans this past year, another 67 have already been lost in 2014. And if the graphic is right, you see the number of people that have been killed. Those are their faces. I have every one of them on my desk. You should take a look at them. We're not alone in New Orleans. Last year, 156 murders in our city, 415 in Chicago, 333 in New York, 255 in Los Angeles, 247 in Philadelphia, 137 in Dallas, 234 in Baltimore, 333 in Detroit. That's a lot of death. But murder doesn't just happen. Now, this scourge grows out of poverty. It grows out of hopelessness. For many, the deck is stacked against them from the day they are born. Broken families, struggling neighborhoods, poor schools, inadequate health care, no jobs. Frustration turns to cynicism. Misery turns to despair. Hope fades. Hate grows. Happy eyes turn sad. Seven, eight, nine years old. Smile turns sour, bitterness sprouts, and in the end, tragedy triumphs, and there's blood on the streets. In a downward spiral, violence begets violence. The shooter of today is often, very often, the victim of tomorrow. I mean, the next day. And every murder leaves a wide wake of destruction, a very long line of victims, the collateral damage of gunshots in the dark. An innocent child loses a father, a mother's heart is broken, a family is left alone, and we are left to think about what might have been. That's what happened to Leonard Galman. Leonard's father was killed on the streets of New Orleans when he was four. His 17-year-old mother was left alone. Five years later, Leonard's life was turned, again, turned upside down again, this time by another tra tragedy, Katrina. There were no silver linings in Katrina, but the wind, the rain, the fire, and the floods, <clears throat> waters also produced change. By the time Leonard was a senior in high school, the post-storm education reforms in New Orleans, which are dramatic, had taken root. He went from one of the worst schools in the city to one of our new charter schools, which had special focus on college. That has made all of the difference. With the help of his teachers, Leonard got all his ducks in a row and eventually applied to 10 colleges and universities. This fall, he is going to attend Yale University. That's good, isn't it? That's what I thought you would do. For weeks, Leonard's story was everywhere. It was the big story on the front page of all the papers. More articles, editorials followed. He was honored by the city council. He was honored by the state legislature. Congratulations and donations flooded in across the city, all because he showed us that there is hope, there's possibility, there was a pathway to opportunity. With help, even just a little bit of help, this young African-American kid did great things, as can all African-American men. But for Leonard, it was not as easy, not so easy, and we shouldn't ask any child born in America to bear such a burden just to get a chance at something more. Even the greatest among us would have a hard time climbing the mountain that Leonard climbed. If you want to know just how steep the path is for many of our young people, just go into any elementary school in a tough neighborhood. Ask a classroom of eight-year-olds a couple of questions. Ask them who lost a friend or a family member to violence. Ask them who had to run for cover from gunfire. Ask them who has seen blood on the streets, and then ask them how many bodies 
have you seen? Can you imagine asking your children those questions? I don't think so. The answers our little children will give you to these questions will bring you to your knees. Leonard is the exception. He's not the rule. But there are two sides of every coin. And Marshall Coulter is the other side of the coin. In many ways, Marshall is a lot like Leonard. Both young African-American men from tough neighborhoods, both lost their fathers when they were young. Both of their childhoods were marked by Katrina. Like air, Leonard rose above it all. But Marshall fell like a rock. His first arrest came when he was 10. More run-ins with the law followed, marijuana, theft, burglary. Marshall would later be described by his brother as a professional thief. Then last July at age 14, Marshall got shot in the head as he stood in a stranger's backyard in the house that he was attempting to rob at 2 in the morning. He climbed over a tall fence to snoop around, opened a window storm, shuttered a pier in the dark house, but there were three people asleep inside. A man named Merritt Landry, who actually works for the city of New Orleans, his pregnant wife and his two-year-old daughter. It was Merritt who, awoken by his barking dog, grabbed the gun, stepped out the back door into his yard. What exactly happened next? We do not know, but in the early morning darkness, a warning was yelled out. Marshall made a sudden movement, and Merritt squeezed the trigger. After the shooting, Marshall was on death's door in a coma for weeks, but he survived. Meanwhile, Merritt, the homeowner, was arrested for attempted murder, suspended from the city of New Orleans pending the outcome of the investigation. But after the investigation, the DA declined the charges. One reason the DA decided not to move forward was that, unbelievably, within months after leaving the hospital and regaining consciousness, Marshall was again arrested for another burglary. Think about that. Even after all he had happened to him, at the tender age of 15, he was stuck on a dark path, and we all know where it ends. In jail or an untimely death, another life wasted. So we have two young men, one likely gone to jail, the other one's gone to Yale, they started in the same place, so where did their paths diverge? When did hope turn to despair? And how can we help people, young men like Marshall, before it's too late? As one local columnist wrote, how can we make Leonard the general rule and not just the exception? Not enough investment and attention is focused on our vulnerable young African-American men. They think that we have forsaken them, and I have to say in large measure, I think they're right. Even Leonard is not out of the woods yet. Only one out of every 10 low-income, first-generation college students who start college actually graduate. Indeed, all the attention and exposure Leonard received is telling. It's good to celebrate his success, but it shows how far we have to go. I hope and pray that someday it will not be a front-page news story when a young African-American man from New Orleans goes to Yale. There are no easy answers to our problems, but one thing is for sure. To fight murder and help our young African-American men, we need everyone on board. Local, state, federal government, each need to do their part. Churches and schools, friends and neighbors, mothers and fathers, each need to do their part. Overall, we need a surge on the streets of America, at the churches and the playgrounds. Democrats, Republicans, Congress, President Obama should lock hands, dedicate themselves to supporting young African-American men who are at risk. 
President Obama's My Brother's Keeper initiative seeks in some ways to do just that, to close the opportunity gaps so that they can thrive, and that's good. But we should also relaunch a stronger, more targeted COPS program, community policing, which worked so well in the mid-'90s. More money to put more cops on the beat go a long way, a long way, to making our neighborhoods safe. And by the way, it's something that both President Obama and the NRA agree with. President Obama wants to put them on the street. The NRA wants to put them in the schools. The street and the schools are 10 feet from each other. I think they can make a deal. <laughs> Congress has the money for this. In fact, according to the Government Accountability Office, from 2009 to 2011, nearly $14 billion was spent by your United States government building, hiring, training, and equipping police departments. But this $14 billion wasn't spent in New Orleans. It wasn't spent in Philadelphia. It wasn't spent in Chicago. Even though we're fighting the good fight against murder on what amounts to a shoestring budget. No, no, no. This money went to build police departments and security forces for the people of Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Mexico, and particularly Medellin, Colombia. Again, if we want to be strong abroad, it seems to reason that we have to be strong at home as well, and these federal resources, many of them, need to be directed back home too. We need Congress to treat fighting murder and violent crime as a national priority. Furthermore, we need to do something about criminals with illegal guns. So let me be clear, I support the Second Amendment, but the genius of our Constitution always creates a balance between rights and responsibilities. It distinguishes between the right to speak our mind and the crime of yelling fire in a crowd. Common sense solutions can be struck to find a balance to the original tent. And there is common ground, actually, on this issue. I'll give you just one example. Everyone can agree that we should do what we can to get illegal guns out of the hands of dangerous criminals. And here's one specific way we can do it. Over 30 years ago, Congress authorized federal agencies and prosecutors to target drug dealers directly as part of the war on drugs. We should do the same thing with violent gun offenders and make their prosecution a federal priority. Let's give prosecutors clear concurrent jurisdiction over all violent offenses committed by firearms that have traveled in interstate commerce. You need to bring the hammer down on like, just like we've tried to do in New Orleans. The bottom line is that on the big issues of the day, we have to refuse to look away. We can't be quiet. We can't stay in denial. After all, we pride ourselves as Americans on tackling difficult problems. We fix things. We put our hands to the plow and we find to make a better life. I want you to think about this. When 300 little girls were kidnapped by murderous terrorists a world away in a Nigerian village, we paid attention and we responded. When Putin threatened the peace, we acted. President Obama wants a billion dollar security aid package for Poland and other Eastern European nations, not to mention the $500 million he just asked for Syria. This is what we do. The United States of America doesn't shy away from a challenge. We step up and work to solve big problems, even if there are no clear solutions. And on this issue of preventing murder, it is our people getting slaughtered. If we're truly one nation, indivisible, something needs to be done. We have solutions, example after example of how we can get it done. All we need is the will, and we need the focus. This is a national issue that deserves a national response. My good friend Mike Nutter, a courageous leader, said that if every year the Ku Klux Klan killed thousands of African-American kids, 
this country would be on lockdown. If thousands of well-off white kids from the suburbs were murdered every year, there would be hell to pay. If either one of these things happened, the earth would stop spinning, the sun would stop shining, and we would respond marshalling every resource that we have to find a way or make one to fix this problem. Yet nearly 15,000 people in America, a disproportionate share, young African-American men, are murdered, and truly, not one word. Here's the point. As Americans, if something is a priority, we have to find a solution, or we have to make one. Some may say, not my neighborhood, not my kid, not my problem, but folks, violence is like a virus. It spreads. It spreads from the streets of Central City in New Orleans to the south side of Chicago, to a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, to Newtown, Connecticut, to the Navy shipyard in Washington, D.C., and then perhaps, and then perhaps, it is at your doorstep or at your car's door. I say this not to make you afraid, but to make you realize that everything is interconnected. What affects one impacts all. We need to make sure on the homeland that no one is left behind either. And we are not living up to that promise right now as American citizens. But if you get down into the issue of murder, you can come to understand that in many ways, no matter how much work we do, no law by itself, no rule, no regulation, no federal funding alone is going to fundamentally change the culture of death on the streets of America. Government, even on its best day, can never replace a family. And so personal responsibility plays a very, very big part here. And we each need to take care of our own business and help take care of the people around us. There is no excuse. We have to really quit waiting and start doing. We may not all be at fault, as I have said before. I will leave that argument to somebody else. But it is absolutely clear. Now that we know about it, now that we see it, now that we understand it, now that it is provable, now that it is true, we are all responsible for changing the culture of death and violence to a culture of peace and prosperity and opportunity. Some believe that the murder of thousands of young African-American men on our streets is to be accepted, like it's part of the natural order of things. Well, it hasn't always been this way, which means that it doesn't have to always be this way. But I'm here to tell you that we are each bound as one nation, indivisible, with one shared destiny. Now's the time to make combating murder and violent crime a national priority. Now is the time to help young African-American men specifically overcome the challenges they face. All of you in this room are some of the leading voices in a nation, and you can make a difference. So take this urgent message to heart. Keep it at the front of your minds. Join me clearly, really as a moral imperative. This is not right. This is not who we are as Americans. The killing has to stop. Help us invest in and find the solutions to the problems. Get involved. Spend your time on this issue, your treasure, your talent. Through this work, we can inspire our nation and the world and prove that we can produce triumph out of tragedy. After all, this is what we do. We tackle big challenges, and this one is as tough as this country has faced in a long time. We have a long way together to go together, but the deaths of so many Americans on the streets of our nation was not those individuals' destiny, and it should not be this nation's legacy. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Thank you all very much. Yes, sir. Thank you. I have a big idea for you. My premise is that fewer guns, we'd have fewer pictures on your desk. Why doesn't the city of New Orleans and the mothers of the kids who were killed put in a lawsuit suing the NRA, suing the gun manufacturers, and the basis of the lawsuit is that their First Amendment rights are being overrun by the Second Amendment. Now, I happened to be here last year, and I ran this by Justice Breyer. I just asked him, I'm not a lawyer. Did he tell is, you how he'd vote? No, he told me that was a legitimate lawsuit. So let's face it, the gun lobby has killed everything, Newtown, all this stuff. Better start fighting. They only know a punch in the nose. This, I understand, I'm not a lawyer, is a legitimate lawsuit. Why don't you have your district attorney, whatever, look into this as a way to start fighting back? I'll, let me address, let me, I want, thank you very much. It's a great question. Um, Matt Nutter says, you know, my First Amendment right to life trumps your right to own a gun. And there's a big battle in there somewhere. Um, I, I want to make a couple of just comments about gun control, gun fights, and why we can't seem to come to agreement on anything. After the Newtown massacre, we spent a lot of time in this nation, which is a, a, almost an unthinkable act that occurred, uh, fighting about assault weapons. And the discussion in the last couple of years was about that. In this fight on murder, what we want to try to, what we have tried to do is stay focused on the data. And the data is, for us, that about 90% of these murders are being uh, as a result of the use of handguns. So we spent a lot of time on the assault weapon ban, but nobody talked about this. Uh, I want to say a couple of things to you guys as well. I just told you that I'm a supporter of the Second Amendment, but I'm also very balanced in the approach to reasonable and thoughtful restrictions. And where there's common ground, we ought to find it. And I told you one area where there's clearly common, actually two, I told you about the COPS program, and I told you about the federal um, jurisdiction. But I want you to think about this because as, as you, when you first get into this issue, some people will generally from the left will say, look, it's because the kids don't have a job. It's because they come from a broken family. It's because they're poor. The data does not reflect that all people that live in poverty shoot friends who they know over things that you and I would consider to be, you know, crazy. When you get on uh, the right, and you talk about guns, and people say, well, it's the guns. Well, clearly the gun is the mechanism, but it's also true that six million Americans have guns, and they don't shoot each other either. Over, So I don't want, the, I'm not telling you that that's not a part of this problem. When you take guns, and you take poverty, and you take broken families, and you take poor education, and you take tough neighborhoods, and you mix it all up, we would call it a, a gumbo, right? It's a, it, it's a Molotov, a Molotov cocktail, that is going to produce a bad result. And you can actually almost identify these kids. So all of those issues are important. I'm not saying that they're not. But what, what we are seeing from the data, and I, I don't know why it began to manifest itself around 1980, but a different kind of thing started happening with a certain group of kids in select neighborhoods in America where they have resolved their differences over silly stuff by shooting somebody they know in the head. And then those friends go shoot that kid the next day. And that's why I call it a culture, a behavioral pattern that has developed over time amongst a group of people. And this has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with gender. You have other instances of behavioral patterns being formed about other stuff. This one just happens to be 
around something that is actually not only killing the kids, but killing the city as well. And so all of those issues are part of it. That may be a mechanism that people will use to take away the instrument of most of the murders. But even if you did that, my best guess is these kids are in, in a situation where are they going to find a way to hurt each other and really make their opportunities less. You have to do that, but you have to do more as well. And you just can't make it about one thing. It's about economic opportunity. It's about jobs. It's about schools. It's about all that stuff. But there's something else going on in America that we don't fully understand. And you can't see it because it's a one-off and it gets reported on the side of the paper. And unless you add it up, like I've done, to show it to you, you might think that it's actually not happening. Yes. Um, How you doing, during Ray? The, I'm okay, Mayor. Good. Good to see you. During the 25 years from here back to 1989, Violent crime in much of the country has dropped like a rock. The uh, number of people who were murdered in places like New York is a fraction of what it was in the late 80s and early 90s, but the murder rate is also down in places like Los Angeles and even in places I would consider in some ways peer cities to New Orleans uh, like Miami and Atlanta with high concentrations of poverty and very wide gaps between the wealthy and, and the poor. So what's going on in New Orleans? I know you know your city intimately. I know you travel the country a lot. Why is the rate there so persistently high when many of the same problems, the nihilism, the belief that nobody cares if they die, the willing to, willingness to settle scores with weapons, these, you can find these things in, in center cities all over the country. What's going on in New Orleans that makes that level so ambiently, persistently high and so stubborn to bring down? First of all, that's a great question. Of course, I ask myself that question all the time, and I'm not telling you that it's not. When you look at Baltimore, Chicago, there are a couple of different ways to, that academics measure this. One is per capita, and then one is how I really count it in, in bodies in the ground. So the sheer numbers of people in New York are higher than New Orleans and in Chicago, but the per capita is lower because they have more people. So cities that are big, that are growing, that are doing well, it appears as though you are safer if you live in the cities. But what I'm telling you is when you get into the data, you can find neighborhoods in New York, in Atlanta, in Baltimore, in Chicago. If you're a young African-American male that fits into this category, your, the, 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 the murder rate in your neighborhood is, in some instances, even in New York, 100 times the national average. And so if you look at it from a city's, cities, big cities, but if you look at it from a neighborhood perspective, what you find is that young African-American men have not benefited from the drop in murder that regular folks have benefited from that uh, are susceptible to better police action and better police behavior. I do, however, not to give New Orleans escape, think that there is something going on in some neighborhoods all across America that are, are not susceptible to the kind of change uh, that we have seen. I don't know what the answer is. That is why we are looking so hard at it. But here's what I know. If we don't say that it's happening, if we don't recognize it, if we don't declare that it's not the direction that we want to go in, nobody is going to think about finding an answer to the problem. You see here all the time, people come up with wonderful ideas, people love it. All of a sudden, time, resources, treasure is spent on finding an answer to the problem. I'm saying to you, as an Indian scout who's been out there looking around, that this issue continues to plague communities all across America. And then when you look at the sheer numbers, 15,000 every year, 
about half of them are African-American men, right? So 45, 50% of the murders. African-American men only make up 6% of the population. Something is amiss in that number alone. And many of these kids, even in some of those cities that are doing fairly well, are at risk because some of the neighborhoods that they live in. And oh, by the way, murder and shootings are different things. There are some cities that have lower murders and higher shootings. Some have higher murders and lower shootings. We can't figure out the metric of why that's different. There's some areas that are poorer, that have less murder, right? And so that indication is not um, a clear line, which is why I think we need to spend a lot of time thinking about it, understanding it, and knowing it. By the way, you've got a group of guys now. Many of them are, are going to keep doing what they're doing. You've got to stop them from hurting each other and everybody else. That's the tough part. But you've got to st stop a whole generation of young children from coming up and being part of, you know, that culture that's developed over time that is passed down from generation to generation. Yes? When we're talking about these murders in the inner city, we're mostly talking about illegal weapons. Correct. Now, with those illegal weapons, our kids are not the ones bringing those guns that's into those communities. Too. Where are those guns coming from? And if we stop those guns, don't we start to alleviate the problem? I, th I think that, uh, well, I, I addressed that issue when I responded to that gentleman's call. That may very well be an approach you take in a state like Louisiana, and we spoke about this at our previous uh, council. What cities can do is sometimes circumscribe by what happens on the state level. So cities are limited in what kind of measures they can take. However, what I was saying before, just to kind of point out what I think should be the obvious, when the NRA and the president or Congress can find common ground, which is doing everything we can to get, hands, get guns out of the hands, right, illegal guns out of the hands of criminals, then we should at least do that because I think that's going to be a step in the right direction. And some of that has to do with who's manufacturing, who's bringing them in, how to get to them, and how to arrest uh, that important. But I don't want you to think that that alone is the answer, alone is the answer to this problem. There's something deeper going on here that I think that we have to understand and address, and it could be all of the above that we have to work on. Yes, let me go over here. I'm sorry. Hey, Tom. Uh, hi. Uh, thank you for taking on a tough issue. As you You're know, welcome. we have the same issue in Chicago. One of the things we're struggling with is the hardware thing, I, I agree, is a problem, but there's this, I'll call it the software part, which is how have you seen any, been able to develop any programs in New Orleans for prevention, which uh, are targeted towards those at-risk youth that they readily embrace and accept. So let me give you an example. So doing basketball at night uh, is a temporary stopgap, keeps them busy, but doesn't really build conflict resolution. If you want to do conflict resolution, doing therapy on Michigan Avenue in an office building when someone walks in with a hoodie on and their pants down at their knees and the security guard looks like they're carrying a gun, not particularly, uh, they're not particularly interested in going to it. So we've had a trouble. Ceasefire didn't really work for us because they didn't get along with the police. So have you seen any innovative programs? Think of it like if you're selling those people something. They're your customers where you create a customer value proposition where the at-risk youth say, yes, I would like to embrace that, other than my friend just got killed. Well, the, the, answer, the answer is we're still working on it. So Tom is, as you know, the head of Allstate and has done a lot of work as a business leader in Chicago and doing some good work. We actually borrowed the ceasefire model in part from Chicago. Uh, the, the idea is, if you, if you think about it, uh, the killer of today is going to be the victim of tomorrow. It's usually an immediate reaction. If you can get in between them and cool that down for 72 hours, 
right, if you know who the folks are, then you can actually alleviate and actually reduce murder. It, it's a model that actually works. And the reason it works, at least in New Orleans, first of all, they're working in, they're not working quote unquote in partnership with the police department because they don't like to talk about it that way, but they're not antagonistic to each other and ex-offenders who know everybody in the neighborhood are actually working as the mediator. So there's some authenticity there in who's speaking to the young men that are interrupting. Another thing we did, we borrowed something from St. Louis where we asked judges if there's a gun involved in a crime or a murder, make sure the bond is set so that it's a little bit harder to get out so fast. The minimum level they used in St. Louis was $30,000, and it, again, demonstrated that it kept the young man in jail for at least 24 to 48 hours. It gave the teams time to get on the streets and to get that interruption gone. So ceasefire has, has actually uh, proved to be quite helpful in New Orleans. Now, one of the other things that does happen is um, our, all of our recreation centers are now portals for all of the young kids. And so y'all may have heard Bruce Katz up here talking about STEAM, science, technology, right, engineering, art, and math. Every one of our recreation portals, when kids come play soccer, baseball, basketball, or our arts education programs, we then grab them and use them, use all of those portals as a way to get the kids in to teach them not about the subject matter at hand, but to teach them partnership and to teach them conflict resolution. You don't have to tell them, hey, I'm bringing you in here uh, to teach you how to get you know, better so that you don't get killed, but you teach them the skills that are required. Now, schools are really kind of the place where you're going to get the kids earliest enough, and it would be great if all of the school systems would help design conflict resolutions, but you're actually going to have to get into some hard stuff that causes a lot. Of, we're going to have to start talking about families. We have to talk about personal responsibility. We have to talk about churches. Some of my young men tell me that some of their churches are actually scared to go in the neighborhoods, right? We got to kind of break all of that stuff down and then re rebuild. And this is part of, quite frankly, um, a much larger resiliency effort, much of which is, is, is being tried in, uh, in other states. You have tight-knit neighborhoods like we used to have. Um, all of those things are going to be necessary to make this happen. And, of course, the long-term solution is education. The long-term solution is stronger families. That takes time and it takes generations, which is why you got to be on the front end of this thing. Like, you got to be tough, aggressive interdiction, identifying who the top 5% is that are committing all the crimes, get your law enforcement on them. But at the same time, you got to back it all the way down, right, to prevention and workforce development and, as I said, reentry programs. And all of a sudden, at some point, we're hoping to see right, that the, the tide turned. We're not there yet. I think we're making progress. There's some hope. But I tell you, when you look at the numbers across the country, like the ones I read to you at the early part uh, of the speech, I mean, as we speak, uh, it, it is quite dawning in the neighborhoods that those folks live in. And you can imagine how debilitating it is if you happen to be a young child that lives in that neighborhood and you see the kind of stuff, you know, that some of these kids are seeing. It's really, really hard. Yes. I've seen you speak three times question. now. This is oh, my did? third time. I repeated I, myself I each know, time? No, I think you're okay. very involved and very committed, and I love it. The one thing I haven't heard you talk about is volunteerism. I think there's a lot of talent out there. Oh, huge. People, no, no. you know, and I just went to the Boomer talk, and Boomers and even Millennials and stuff. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of people that can help if they're trained to deal with these kids when they're little. You know, I'm from the South. So I was about to say, yes, ma'am, I know, but I want you to get mad at me for calling you ma'am. Um, forgive me for that. New Orleans has been the beneficiary of probably the most robust 
volunteer movement that America has seen. I mean, we would not be where we are. And so I didn't mean to take it for granted. Everything that we do is infused uh, with volunteers. And when I was a lieutenant governor of the state, I was in charge of AmeriCorps, right? I was in, in charge of social entrepreneurship, and I was in charge of volunteerism. We have literally built it into everything that we have done and would not be able to survive without that. Um, but as, as wonderful as that is, and as wonderful as volunteers are, we're talking about getting into the essence of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be rooted in a community, what a father and mother are supposed to do with their children, what they're supposed to do with their church and community, how we as a nation have to kind of just say, this is unacceptable. You know, we have not said that as a nation. We have, we have not made that utterance. This is unacceptable. This is not who we are as a people. We have not said it because we have not acknowledged that it's occurring perhaps because we didn't know, perhaps because we didn't understand. But if you think about yourself and you're really hard on yourself and you ask yourself why you stop in front of the TV when Fox is on or CNN is on or MSNBC or ABC, NBC or Ray, if you watch Ray on TV, he's one of the greatest of all time. You have to ask yourself, why do you stop? What, what grabs your attention? Why does it grab your attention? What upsets you? Right? And how much time do you spend on it? And then what do you do? You will acknowledge, not this. I don't know what the answer is for all the other stuff, but you will acknowledge, not this. But you can't deny that it's occurring. I just showed you. Those are real life people. Those are real names. And it is a fact that I keep behind my desk. I have seven of them, big red binders that are this thick, that have the names and pictures of every human being what they look like before they were killed and what they look like when they're on the ground. Every one of them. And I keep them on purpose because I want to be uncomfortable about this issue. And as all New Orleans gets all the applause for doing all the wonderful things that it's doing, and we're doing great things, and I'm very proud of them, and I'm thankful to all of you, what I'm saying is we're leaving folks behind. And I don't think that we will ever be that nation that we aspire to be right, that more perfect union that we talk about, if we continue to let this happen, because I think, in my opinion, this is what we would call a gateway issue. It takes you a lot of other places where we could do a lot better, but it requires us to value every human being in the United States of America because they are all valuable. And if you just think about the amount of potential that we're losing because of the way our criminal justice system works and the way and the consequences that we have all collectively over time in some form or fashion, some more benign, some from malintent, some from just indifference created, I think that most people would agree this is not the really nation that they once envisioned that, that we wanted to live in. But having said that, I believe this, every problem is solvable. And I have seen time and time again the people of America say, if that's important, if that's a priority, if we have to get after it, we're going to get after it, and we're going to find a way, or we're going to make one, and I think we have to do that here, too. All right, thank you all so much. I appreciate it. That was Mary Mitch Landrieu, recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 28, 2014. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and from across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. And while you're there, please take a few moments to rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues. You can also follow the festival on Twitter at Aspen Ideas and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, 
Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.